Welcome to Heart in Art, the podcast that connects people through creativity. I'm your host, Danny Vanderbrook, a UK-based fiction writer and freelance journalist. Today is our 2020 Christmas special, with extracts from Charles Dickens' traditional Victorian yuletide story, Christmas Carol. Get your mince pies out, your eggnog at the ready, and cosy up in a blanket by the fire, because it's story time. Charles Dickens is a Victorian writer, most famous for David Copperfield, Oliver Twist, and Great Expectations. Often described as a quintessential Victorian author, Dickens' stories are enjoyed just as much today as they were by his 19th century readership. Dickens was born on the 7th of February 1812 in Portsmouth. He came from a poor family, but was lucky enough to attend school. His father was jailed for having bad debts, which meant that Dickens was forced to leave school and start work in a boot polish factory where he worked for three years. The conditions were very poor and Charles Dickens suffered from loneliness. It was these early experiences that were quite formative in his awareness of social conditions. Charles Dickens went on to produce a massive amount of material during his lifetime. He published 15 novels, wrote hundreds of stories and non-fiction pieces, and he lectured and performed in England and the United States. He also wrote plays, thousands of letters, and edited two journals. Dickens died on the 9th of June, 1870. He was buried in the poet's corner of Westminster Abbey. If you're British, you actually see Dickens much more often than not as his face graces the front of the British £10 banknote. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens Preface I have endeavoured in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humour with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their house pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, Charles Dickens, December 1843. Christmas a humbug, Uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? And what reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with humbug. Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly. Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew. But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, 
for which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew, Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I've always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark for ever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Humbug, I tell you. Humbug! At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said, dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge. I must. But why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men, and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me! and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth, and turned to happiness. Again the spectre raised a cry, shook its chain, and wrung its shadowy hands. You were fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on top of my own free will, and of my own free will will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and the length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have laboured on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor, in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable. But he could see nothing. Jacob, he cried imploringly. Oh, Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, the ghost replied. 
It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me! In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. Yet such was I, oh, such was I. That is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghosts had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visit, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude with its chain wound over and about its arm. The apparition walked backward from him and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little. So when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which his spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and misery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. Am I in the presence of the ghosts of Christmas yet to come? asked Scrooge. 
The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not yet happened, but will happen in the time before us, Scrooge pursued. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant, in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. The spirit paused a moment, as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, while he though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one heap of black. Ghost of the future, he exclaimed, I fear you more than any spectre I have seen, but as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be yet another man from what I was, I'm prepared to bear you company and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? He gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, said Scrooge. Lead on, the night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them, and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, observing the hand that was pointed to them. Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? inquired another. Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? asked the third, taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff-box. I thought he'd never die. God knows, said the first with a yawn. What have you done with his money? asked a red-faced gentleman with a pendulous excrescence on the end of his nose that shook like the gills of a turkey cock. I haven't heard said the man with the large chin, yawning again. Left it to his company, perhaps? He hadn't left it to me, that's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer? I don't mind going if lunch is provided, observed the gentleman with the escrants on his nose, but I must be fed if I make one. Another laugh. "'Well, I'm not the most disinterested among you after all,' said the first speaker, "'for I never wear black gloves and will never eat lunch. "'But I'll offer to go if anyone else will. "'When I come to think of it, I'm not all sure I wasn't his most particular friend, "'for we used to stop and speak whenever we met.' "'Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. "'Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. "'The phantom glided on into the street. "'Its finger pointed to two persons meeting.' Scrooge listened again, thinking that the explanation might lie here. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised the spirit should attach importance to conversations apparently so trivial, but feeling assured they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of old Jacob, his old partner, for that was past, and this ghost province was the future. Nor could he think of any one immediately connected with himself, to whom he could apply them. But nothing doubting to that whomsoever they applied had some latent moral for his own improvement. He resolved to treasure up every word he heard, and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared. For he had an expectation that the conduct of his future self 
would give him the clue he missed and would render the solution of these riddles easy. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she'd scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black, who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe who joined them all three burst into a laugh, "'Let the charwoman alone to be the first cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone be the third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance, if we haven't all three met here without meaning it. We couldn't have met in a better place, said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. Come into the parlour. You were made free of it a long ago, you know, and the other two ain't strangers. Shop till I shut the door of the shop. Ah, how it screeks! There ain't such a rusty bit of metal in the place as its own hinges, I believe, and I'm sure there's no old bones here as mine. <laughs> We're all suitable to our calling. We're well matched. Come in the parlour. Come into the parlour. The parlour was a space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old stair rod, having trimmed his smoky lamp with the stem of his pipe and put it in his mouth again. While he did this, a woman who'd already spoken threw her bundle on the floor and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool, crossing her elbows on her knees and looking with bold defiance at the other two. "'What odds, then? What odds, Mrs Dilber?' said the woman. "'Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did.' "'That's true indeed,' said the laundress. "'No man more so.' Why, then, don't stand staring as if you was afraid, woman. Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed, says Mrs. Dilber and the man together. We should hope not. Very well, then, cried the woman. That's enough. Who's the worse for a loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed, says Mrs. Dilber, laughing. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, pursued the woman, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been... He'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death, instead of lying gasping out there, last alone by himself. It's the truest word that was ever spoke, said Mrs Dilbert. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier one, replied the woman, and it should have been, may you depend upon it, if I could have laid my hands on any, anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me see the value of it. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We knew pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow of this, and the man in faded black mounting the breach first produced his plunder. It was not extensive, a seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value were all. They were severally examined and appraised by old Joe, who chalked the sums he was disposed to give for each upon the wall, and added them up into a total when he found there was nothing more to come. "'That's your account,' said Joe, "'and I wouldn't give another sixpence "'if I was to be boiled for not doing it. "'Who's next?' Mrs Dilber was next. "'Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, "'a pair of sugar-tongs and a few boots. "'Her account was stated on the wall in the same manner. "'I always give too much to ladies. "'It's a weakness of mine, "'and that's the way I ruin myself,' said old Joe.' That's your account. He asked me for another penny and made it an open question. I repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now undo my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Joe went down on his knees for the greater convenience of opening it. 
and having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out a large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this? said Joe. Bed curtains. <laughs> ah, returned the woman, laughing and leaning forward. Bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took him down, rings and all, with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do, replied the woman. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, said Joe, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I get anything in it reaching out of it for the sake of such a man as he was. I promise you, Joe, returned the woman coolly. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets, asked Joe. Who else's do you think, replied the woman. He isn't likely to take coal without him, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching her, said old Joe, stopping in his work and looking up. Don't you be afraid of that, returned the woman. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did, eh? You may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? asked old Joe. Putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure, replied the woman with a laugh. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it ain't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Scrooge listened to this dialogue in horror. As they sat grouped about their spoil and the scanty light afforded by the old man's lamp, he viewed them with a detestation and disgust, which could hardly have been greater, though they had been obscene demons marketing the corpse itself. Ha <laughs> replied the same woman, when old Joe produced a flannel bag with money in it, told out their several gains upon the ground. This is the end of it, you see. He frightened every one away from him when he was alive to profit us when he was dead. Ha <laughs> Bear it! said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might even be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If only he could be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he'd set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. Quarter past. No Bob. He was a full 18 minutes and a half behind this time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him coming into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door. His comforter too. He was on the stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir, said Bob. I am behind my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, pleaded Bob, appearing from the tank. I shall not be repeated. I was, I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, he continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again. And therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help and a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob! said Scrooge with an earnestness that could not be mistaken, as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. 
I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking Bishop Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good as friend, a good a master, and a good a man as the old city knew, and any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset, and knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.